Because we are body and soul, therefore when the physical and spiritual act in unison, the mundane can be made holy. And that is why Judaism has so many rituals that pertain to food, not just because we like to eat, though we do, but also because we see eating as an extraordinary opportunity for sanctity. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 30, Babette's Feast and the Concept of Korban. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. What is the best film about food ever made? For many, it is a Danish movie, one based on a short story of the same name, Babette's Feast. The story depicts two elderly sisters living as part of an ascetic religious community who take in Babette, a woman who was once a chef in France. Some years later, Babette wins the lottery and spends all of her money on a feast, celebrating the birthday of her host's late father, a religious leader. The members of this sect come to the meal in trepidation, some vowing not to enjoy it. But despite themselves, they are suddenly joined together through food and faith, and in the end they leave the meal in fellowship, linking hands, singing hymns. The writer J. Brian Lauder reflects that, quote, my favorite scene in the film comes after the last glistening course has been served, when she, this is Babette, finally sits for a moment in the kitchen, her skin dewy from work, quietly sipping a glass of wine. The satisfaction on her face is the kind that can only come from the knowledge that you have created something that sustains both the bodies and the spirits of the people in your care. Indeed, Babette's story is an argument for the idea that spending money, time, and energy cooking for friends is the best gift a home cook can give, end quote. The film is rightly beloved, and I believe that an understanding of what it means to sustain both body and spirit can help us address the most difficult subject that we have faced in this series thus far. Everyone knows that the Leviticus is about animal sacrifice a concept utterly alien to many today, but one which traditional Judaism reveres and prays for its ultimate return to Jerusalem. It will take us several lectures to study all of its features, but we begin by unlearning rather than learning, because never, never is our subject called a sacrifice in the Bible. What is emphasized is not giving up something, the word in Hebrew is korban. That is what is brought on the altar. And the root of korban is karov, close. Thus, the second verse in Leviticus, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When any man of you bring near a korban unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the domesticated animal, of the cattle, or of the flock. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch correctly writes that korban, quote, is never to be understood as a gift or a present. It is found solely in the context of man's relationship to God and can only be understood on the basis of the meaning of the root karov. The meaning of karov is in accord with its plain sense, to draw closer, to arrive at a close relationship with someone. End quote. But how is this to be achieved? How do we draw close to God through the korban? Describing the bringing of a bull, as an offering, we are told in verse 5, And he shall slaughter the bullock before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall present the blood, and dash the blood round about against the altar that is at the door of the tent of meeting. 
A korban involving the death of an animal somehow for scripture brings us closer to God. And this means that in understanding Leviticus, we must first seek to understand ourselves. Judaism has long proclaimed that human beings possess a soul that sets us apart from the rest of creation. The soul is immortal, continuing to live long after the body has died. But in embracing this message, diverse religious faiths, including some Jewish thinkers, often assume more, much more, that only the soul is the essence of our identity, that the body is a mere cloak or appendage or prison. The theologian Robert Jensen once told me about a Scandinavian immigrant who served as a pastor in America, and he learned English, but not the idioms. And at his first funeral, he said something like, Do not mourn for he who has died, for the body is only a shell. The nut has gone to heaven. But the truth is that Jews do mourn a death because the body is not just a shell. It is part of us. Every morning Jews, upon arising, pray as follows. My Lord, the soul you have placed in me is pure. You created it, fashioned it, and breathed it within me. You will in the future take it from me and return it to me in the end of days. Who, ladies and gentlemen, is the me in which the soul is placed? It is the body. Both body and soul make us who we are. When as children we seek solace in our mother's arms, it is not only an appendage we are embracing. When our little children lie asleep, it is not their souls we caress in their cribs. And when we are in love, it is not only our spouse's soul to which we are attracted. Death is mourned because it is a cleaving of body and soul. And as we will see in our later discussions of Ezekiel and Daniel, Judaism's ultimate eschatological yearning is the resurrection of the dead, the restoration of soul to body. The Catholic theologian Richard John Newhouse in a reflection on his encounter with disease, describes in one particularly fetching passage how his sojourn at death's door allowed him to realize just how important his body is to his sense of self. I will quote a selection of sentences and phrases from this remarkable passage. He writes, quote, The notion of some of the ancients and the Enlightenment rationalists that the essential I is not involved in the death of this body struck me as preposterous. It is this body, now in pitiful ruins, that participated in the yearnings of my loves, the bracing joy of early morning walks, all those nights of languorously falling into sleep. Not to mention the sounds of Mozart and the taste of a surprisingly fine Merlot at the Italian restaurant up the street. The body remembers. Even my thinking is sensuous. As I lay there going back in memory, my recollections are tactile, touching the burlap of disappointments and running my fingers over the velvet of joys recalled. This body and I, this body that is inseparable from me, together we have been this life. Newhouse puts it accurately and exquisitely. I think it was Yogi Berra who said that baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. As much as we may want to transcend our physical selves, as much as we may assert that we are 90% spiritual, we cannot ignore the fact that our bodies are an essential aspect of our humanity. We are an amalgam of the mortal and the immortal, and for the rabbis, both body and soul are central aspects of ourselves. And though rabbinic Judaism has always insisted on the immortality of the soul, our liturgy stresses that God is mechaye hametim, 
ultimately sure to resurrect the dead, for it is only then that we can become ourselves fully once more. Body and soul together make us us. When Adam is created, he is described in Genesis as nefesh chaya, which literally means a living being. But the rabbis also read it as an ensouled animal. We are akin to animals, but also different from them. And what this means is that to witness a physical end of a life, albeit that of an animal, is to think about our own mortality. But to be blessed with a soul is to have the ability to respond spiritually to that very reminder. Thus, the theologian Michael Wishikrod writes that, quote, Sacrificial Judaism brings the truth of human existence into the temple. It does not leave it outside its portals, end quote. Korban, in other words, forces us to face the fact of our own physicality and of our own mortality. Wishikrod adds, quote, Enlightened religion recoils with horror from the thought of sacrifice preferring a spotless house of worship filled with organ music and exquisitely polite behavior. The price paid for such decorum is that the worshiper must leave the most problematic part of his self outside the temple to reclaim it when the service is over and to live with it unencumbered by sanctification. Religion ought not to demand such a dismemberment of man, end quote. Wishagrat's point is that in the temple and tabernacle, we recognize that we are both body and soul, mortal and immortal, and Korban asks us not to deny our mortality, but to allow it to motivate us to see the life we have on earth as a gift and that we live it by the grace of God. This ultimately is how Korban makes us karov. That is how it draws us closer to God. With this in mind, let us consider the first sort of offering described in Leviticus, the olah, or elevation offering, in which the entire animal though divided into parts, is then offered on the altar. Thus the conclusion of verse 9, And the priest shall offer it entirely on the altar, and olah, offered in fire, a sweet savor unto the Lord. The word olah, burnt offering or elevation offering, is found in the tale of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. There olah appears again and again and again. Abraham was ordered to offer his son as an olah, and as he and Isaac trudge up the mountain, his son plaintively asks him, where is the sheep for the Olah? To this he replies, perhaps in prayer, The Lord will show us the sheep for the Olah, my son. And indeed the Almighty does, and a ram is offered as an Olah in place of Isaac. When the temple is established in Jerusalem, the altar occupies, according to tradition, the precise site where Isaac and then ultimately the ram were offered. So imagine a Jew entering the magnificent edifice that is the temple in Jerusalem. The site has been altered since the Akedah, but this Jew is imitating his ancestor Abraham's ascent all the same. And when he stands before the altar with an animal as an offering, he remembers again Abraham's prayer, may God provide us the ram. And he knows here God has provided the ram. And thus, this Jew descends from the Mount Transformed, existentially akin to Abraham returning from Mount Moriah. His attitude to life is changed, for he understands that every moment that he has and that his family has on earth is itself, as it was for Isaac, a lease on life. Korban, then, relates to the complex nature of human existence, and this is true about many ritual requirements in the Bible. Scripture's many commandments, or mitzvahs, relate not merely to belief but to action, for only through dedicated action are body and soul joined or as the philosopher Eliezer Berkowitz put it, in the mitzvah man is one, as a whole he related himself. 
to the one God. Moreover, because we are body and soul, therefore when the physical and spiritual act in unison, the mundane can be made holy. And that is why Judaism has so many rituals that pertain to food, not just because we like to eat, though we do, but also because we see eating as an extraordinary opportunity for sanctity. Animals eat, but there it is a brute instinctive act. Only human beings can eat with both spirit and body. Only through a religious ritual such as the Seder can the seemingly animalistic act of ingesting be transformed into something simultaneously sacred as well as human. The writer Roger Arrow notes how in the film Babette's Feast, quote, just prior to the dinner, we saw that the elderly villagers were at each other's throats, asserting past grievances and grudges against each other. But at the end, they leave Babette's feast merry and harmonious and dance again in a circle around the village well, harmony and fellowship restored, praising God, all because of the grace that came to them through Babette's feast, end quote. Through the Torah, feasting itself can become an opportunity for faith and fellowship. And this, in turn, brings us to another korban described in the beginning of chapter 3, if his offering be a shalamim. Shalamim, whose root is shalom, peace, is usually translated as peace offering. Unlike the olah, the shalamim is eaten. Part is placed on the altar, part given to the priests, and a portion eaten in Jerusalem by the one who brought it, and anyone that he invites to join his meal. In biblical society, offering and eating shlamim is the primary means of celebration, especially during the holidays. And as Deuteronomy will detail, when the Israelites gather at the temple for the festivals, they are obligated to invite those who have no one else into their shlamim feasts. And thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant, and the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless and the widow, that are within thy gates. This togetherness, perhaps, gives the peace offering its name, as an animalistic urge to eat is transformed into something sacred. As Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik wrote, quote, When one eats sacrificial meat, he also feeds strangers, orphans, and widows. Such eating constitutes not only religious worship, but also an act of social morality, including needy people in the circle of one's enjoyment. Friendship and love are embodied in physiological functions through which flesh and blood human beings demonstrate their belonging to a society and their connectedness to others. End quote. Shalamim, then, is a form of dining with the divine and with one's fellow man. Olah and Shalamim are the two animal offerings that can be brought voluntarily. And while we will discuss others offered after sinful action in later lectures, this is our initial attempt to understand Korban. An animal's death sensitizes us to the mortality of our own lives. The Olah reminds us of the Akedah, and the Shlamim sanctifies food through faith. The worldview of Leviticus seems outmoded to many, but the truth is that today, many eat meat without even thinking about from where it came, and certainly rarely give heed to their own mortality when they do so. If there is a time for the lessons of Leviticus, it is our age, for we live, ladies and gentlemen, in a time of foodies and a celebration of food and celebrity chefs. I too, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy watching shows such as Chef's Table and documentaries like Jiro Dreams of Sushi. But there is an element of hedonism at times in today's food obsession. 
J. Brian Lauder, in his essay on the film Babette's Feast, notes that in the movie Babette, quote, cooks not to impress or to show off. Indeed, she never appears in the dining room, but rather to facilitate the alchemy that transforms good food into great fellowship. This is an ethic that is all too rare. We live in a food culture dominated by the notion that cooking is a performance art, something that you wow people with from behind the island of your open concept kitchen, as if you were the host of your own Food Network show. The covers of glossy cooking magazines exhort you to impress your friends with this or that new technique, while celebrity chefs, by their very existence, make the argument that a cook's personality is more important than her food, end quote. Babette, then, shows the way toward an exalted eating, one which brings us together. And for Judaism, it is ultimately God that must be the glue of that relationship. That is why the peace offering eaten with friends and strangers in the precincts of the temple is so sublime. Leon Cass, another appreciator of Babette's feast, describes its conclusion with an appreciation of human beings having both bodies and souls. Cass writes, quote, Thanks to genius and taste, thanks to the extreme generosity and openness of both host and guest, the visage of the eternal shows itself in the midst of the most temporal, as superb food and wine nourish also the spiritual hungers of the assembled. It is a transcendent moment of grace, souls and bodies nourished. People are reconciled, united as one, imbued with the old spirit, awake to the presence of the divine. End quote. That, I think, is ultimately what certain forms of korban achieve. That is what we long to re-experience. And it is ultimately what we ask for at the Seder when we recall the holiday offerings in the temple and we pray next year in Jerusalem. This is Mayor Soloveitchik looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.